This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipska from Chabad of Hyde Park. And a wonderful Erev Shabbos to all of you. If I sound a little bit hoarse and groggy, it's because I had a huge party last night. I actually celebrated a milestone birthday and uh, turned 70. It was a wonderful time, many people, and uh, it went on for a bit. Uh, but perhaps the best thing about that wonderful, wonderful experience was that all my children from around the world have graced us with their presence. They've come from Mauritius and Beijing in America. And, uh, well, just great being with them, sharing some time, sharing some laughs, and just catching up with uh, with family, which is a very special time. But as I said before, if there is a bit of a frog in my throat, it's because the party went on for a bit last night. It's a very special Shabbos that we have, a triple Shabbos, in fact. It's a Shabbos Mevorachim. Uh, we bless the new month of Nisan. Rosh Chodesh is going to be a week from tomorrow. It's going to be a Shabbos Rosh Chodesh, a very special time. It's also uh, Parshat Para. We would read one of the four special parashiyot that we read before Pesach. And it is also Shabbos Chazak. We conclude the book of Exodus, the book of Shemot, and we start the new book of Ayikra at Mincha. So, well, for these reasons and many, many more, a special Shabbos, but we won't have too much time to talk about the Parsha this week because I have a very special guest with us in the studio today, and he will be sharing some of his incredible stories about the work that he does. And it's my son, Rabbi Aaron Lipsker, from Bal Harbor in Florida near Miami, and he is the executive director of an institution called Aleph. And he'll tell you about it soon, but Aleph is a fascinating organization. It does incredibly wonderful work, well, throughout North America, and I think throughout the world as well. We'll hear about that soon. But before we get to my son, to Aaron, I just want to thank him for coming along to the show and uh, spending some time. He's here for a short visit, as I mentioned before. And for him to take this time, instead of being with his siblings and, well, having a good time, he has to sit here with his father and and chat, which is very special for me, and I'm sure it's going to be special for you. So if I am a little bit personal today, a little bit different than my normal style of uh, talk on Fridays, as you know, I speak about the Parsha, and perhaps toward the end I'll talk about it for a minute or two, But as he is here, I want to share him with all of you because, as I said before, the story that he has to tell is quite fascinating. So a huge welcome to you, Aaron. Thank you for coming to the show. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit of what is Aleph. Well, thank you so much and want to convey that I have this opportunity. Uh, Great mazel tov and special blessings on the occasion of this special milestone birthday. And as you mentioned, it was great celebrations together with very many people. But to be together with the family, all of our siblings from all over the world, each one of them in their own respective place, doing each of their own important work. But just to come together and to be here to celebrate together with you has been something which is so special. And we wish you continued success and mazel and bracha in everything that you do. Thank you for that kind introduction about Aleph. And to share with you, to begin with, a basic overview of what the Aleph Institute is, 
the programs that we conduct and how Aleph came to be. The Aleph Institute, as we said, is a national organization in the United States, but also has many international components as well. The fundamental idea of Aleph is to work with individuals who find themselves in institutional or limited environments, as well as their family members. What that means, in simple terms, is that we work with a great many Jewish people that unfortunately find themselves incarcerated in the United States in federal, state, and local prisons and jails. That is one aspect of the programs, which is broken into two components, one which is religious in nature, educational, providing the necessary items, materials, and education for any person in that environment, a Jewish person that finds themselves there, that can still continue to live as a Jew to the extent that he or she wishes, as well as advocating for the support of those programs. On the other hand, there are many challenges that individuals find in a correctional and in institutional environment, disconnected from family, disconnected from community, and we have a very large advocacy department that deals not only with religious matters, as mentioned, but also with general matters pertaining to health or transfer or anything that relates to their time that they are confined in that space. A second major part of the organization is the work that is done with the families, and this is critical, critical work. Unfortunately, we find that for the tens of thousands of family members that are affected by having a loved one that is incarcerated or going through that system, there is unfortunately a lot of disenfranchisement. They're disconnected as well from their communities by no choice of their own, by no doing of their own. And therefore, we have developed and continue to develop a wide range of social and religious and other types of programs for the family members, for spouses, for children specifically. And these pertain to their daily lives. This pertains to milestone events in their lives, as well as their schooling, their education, summer camps. And the list goes on. We can talk about some of those at greater length. A third component of the organization, which is a separate component but has certain similarities, is the work that we do with the United States Armed Forces. Within that capacity, we have two general directions. One is the work that we do as a ecclesiastical endorsing agency, meaning that any rabbi or chaplain that wants to enter the military requires a special endorsing agency that will vouch for them and acknowledge them to the Pentagon. And Olive Today is one of the largest endorsers of Orthodox chaplains in all of the branches of the United States military. Along with that, we work directly with many thousands of Jewish servicemen and women who are stationed around the country in the United States, stationed on military installations all over the world, and unfortunately for the many of those that are deployed into active combat environments and ensuring that we can provide the necessary materials and connection for them as well day-to-day, when it comes to the holidays, and making sure that they have a connection to their Judaism and a connection to back home. 
I'm sorry for interrupting you, but perhaps you can give us a number. How many Jewish inmates would there be in the prisons throughout America at any given time? The number is approximately 4,500 to 5,000. Uh, the number, unfortunately, doesn't change all that much, although there is a huge number of people who leave prison every year. But just to back up for a moment, just to give some perspective, the criminal justice system and the penal system in the United States, unfortunately, and this is part of our involvement in that work, has one of the highest rates of incarceration in the world. Um, obviously, within countries that maintain those numbers and share those numbers, it's a staggering number that the United States has approximately 5% of the world's population, but almost 25% of the world's inmates. That's an amazing statistic. We're going to stop just now for a break, and we'll continue in a few minutes. But just before we stop, and in the armed forces, how many Jewish um, personnel might be in the armed forces at any given time? According to the numbers that we have, uh, it's approximately five to 7,000. Uh, those are the ones that I identify with it. Those are the ones that we are in touch with. So those numbers are not exactly accurate, but those are the numbers that we have. For those of you who've just joined, today we have a bit of a different, well, Parsha hour. I have my son, Rabbi Aaron Lipscar from the United States, who heads up the Aleph Institute, and he's telling us about the fascinating work they do and what, in fact, the Aleph Institute is all about, an organization that is totally dedicated to the needs of people in limited environments. We will continue in a short while, but until then, here's something to think about. This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipska from Chabad of Hyde Park. And we're, and we're back, but we're talking a bit differently today. Well, not so much about the Parsha. We'll leave that toward the end. But I have a very special guest with me here in the studio, Rabbi Aaron Lipska, my son, who's here on a family visit with his siblings. And it's wonderful to have him telling us about his work at uh, Aleph, an amazing organization, an amazing, well, expression of concern and love for one's fellow in very practical terms. But before we get on with the show, I want to remind everybody, well, it's Sinai in Daba weekend. And don't forget, this is really a great one. It's Sinai 7. And uh, I'm sure you want to be there. So if you haven't registered yet, you can still go to sinai-indaba.co.za and uh, sign up. There are a tremendous range of speakers. It'll be a wonderful experience. Make sure that you're there and do the best you can to enjoy this incredible, incredible effort brought about by the chief rabbi and now part of Jewish life here in Johannesburg, in fact, throughout the country, throughout South Africa. As I mentioned, we're sitting with um, my son, Aaron. Aaron is the executive director of the Aleph Institute. And the Aleph Institute deals with people in difficult situations. And he told us before a bit of a frightening statistic that at any given time, there are between four and a half and 5,000 Jews incarcerated in the United States. And toward the end, he mentioned to us about the huge number of people generally incarcerated in the United States. I'd like to touch upon that a bit more. First of all, can you tell us more or less what crimes they're in jail for, the Jewish community? Well, unfortunately, the 
types of crimes that, ja- that people find themselves in those environments. And, of course, understanding the differences between the federal system versus a state system often will indicate uh, the nature of what those crimes might be. Uh, for many, it is uh, first-time, nonviolent, white-collar type offenses that relate to financial types of crimes or other, other matters relating to that. Unfortunately, there are many others that find themselves facing the law because of uh, drugs, because of um, other types of uh, criminal behavior and activity and theft. But one of the uh, glaring issues within that is when we look at the percentage of individuals that are either incarcerated or facing incarceration due to drug use, not for distribution, not for purposes of creating uh, any sort of benefit or gain from it, other than the fact that they are themselves addicts, which leads them to all sorts of behavior to sustain that illness, as well as the epidemic of mental health problems that we face in the United States. And unfortunately, due to those issues, people find themselves, once again, facing incarceration due to the behavior that they exhibit or things that they do in that situation. And unfortunately, the criminal justice system and the prison system is what's used to house these individuals. And a big component and part of what Aleph is involved with, which we can talk about more in a few minutes, is how to address that problem and those individuals and how to tackle that not only within our own communities, but in the wider circles of criminal justice reform. We have been very vocal within that environment, having seen this epidemic and understanding that so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are affected by this and worked tirelessly with leaders within the different environments, whether it's the congressional environments, whether it's the judicial system, whether it's at the local level with government to talk about the types of programs, the type of solutions that can be implemented to work with these individuals. Personally, we have a program. Olive has a, a branch called Project Tikva, which works with young men and women, specifically, usually under the age of 25, that find themselves in the criminal justice system, incarcerated or facing incarceration due to drug use or mental health issues. And successfully, thank God, in certain districts and in certain places, we have been able to work closely with the district attorneys, with others, to find better alternatives and to actually help these individuals get out of prison, but only into proper facilities and environments that can actually help them and can actually make them better. If I may ask you, um, when you speak about mental health issues, why would they be put in jail because of that? Unfortunately, I think, you know, the system is just inadequate with how it handles um, or the reality of it, how they deal with it. And the problem is that when you have people that are behaving in a certain way, not being properly diagnosed, what ends up happening is they just become a nuisance to society or they behave in a bad way, which puts them right in front of the criminal justice system. It's because they're not being properly diagnosed. They're not being properly understood of why they're behaving in this sort of way. One would think that the United States, which is really the leader in Western society, would have a far more advanced 
well, way of dealing with these issues. It seems to me quite backward almost. Well, it's quite fascinating that we have seen that the alternative concepts and the alternative sentencing opportunities and the types of reentry programs that have been created have had tremendous success in certain state environments, whereas the one that actually is falling short is the federal government, and the federal government needs to catch up with the states where you might have thought that it would be the other way around. But obviously, with the huge financial uh, costs to government uh, that come with this, uh, w- with the realities of having this level of incarceration, they have to be looking at ways to deal with this. When you deal with a state system in many environments that is spending more on the industry of incarceration than they are on education or health care, you've got a real problem. When you take a look at the Department of Justice, which oversees many, many of the federal agencies, uh, including the FBI, CIA, Homeland Security, all of those internal agencies, as well as the Federal Bureau of Prisons and the whole judicial system, and having read a recent report from the uh, Inspector General, uh, you see a shocking 25% of that budget is being utilized in the correctional, judici- uh, correctional and criminal justice environment, which is quite staggering. Generally speaking, with the founding of Aleph, which I'll talk for a moment, because the idea there and its inception really came from the Lubavitcher Rebbe due to his unconditional love that he displayed constantly for every person and for every environment and to constantly remind us that we as a whole have to be responsible completely for each other and specifically in the environments which are uncomfortable to talk about, which are dark and difficult, where people really need our help, where people really need the opportunity to better themselves and to actually become rehabilitated. And we call it rehabilitation environments or correctional environments. Unfortunately, there's not much correction happening other than warehousing of people. So the objective of Aleph primarily is not to get people out of prison, is not to uh, excuse behaviors or crimes that people might commit. Of course, we're completely committed constantly to public safety and to holding people accountable for their behavior. But at the same time, it's important to take a look at why people are there to begin with, to take a look at what alternatives might be possible. When I mention alternatives, it's not about getting off free or not paying your debt or not being responsible for what you've done, but it's finding more effective ways to deal with the situation and finding ways that you can actually work with the person because one of the greatest challenges is recidivism and seeing a person who doesn't get the necessary assistance that they need while they're in that environment and it becomes a turnstile effect. And all of a sudden, you have people that are just constantly finding themselves back in that environment unless the proper intervention is applied. Can you tell us something about some of those alternatives? Some of these alternatives are things which... um, are proposed in the courts at the time when a person is being sentenced by a judge. Uh, There are many things that are taken into consideration at that time. And the way that it works uh, specifically in the federal system is that there is what they call the guidelines. They're uh, recommended range of months that are given to the judge based on all of the different elements of the person's behavior and crime. 
And that is used to give the judge some sort of balance of what is felt to be appropriate. Unfortunately, due to the structure of this, you can end up sometimes with very, very high guidelines for relatively small offense, but because of the way it's structured. And all of a sudden, a person can find themselves facing a draconian sentence, which would require a creative alternative to come in and to talk about how to utilize what this person has done in a way that can benefit society, in a way that they can give back to society rather than just being put away. And I'll give you an example. There was a doctor uh, from Philadelphia, and unfortunately, due to a very complicated uh, family situation, uh, he found himself in a uh, situation where he was uh, prescribing medications that he should not be prescribing. And we all know the epidemic that the world is facing. And certainly in the United States, we see this terrible, terrible epidemic of uh, these medications and what they're doing to people's lives. And here was a situation that there were other factors that needed to be considered. And the question was, were there types of programs that we could implement for this individual alongside a period of incarceration that would be beneficial but would also show the rehabilitative process that he needed to go through. And one of the things that we discussed was him going out into the professional environment of doctors and giving lectures and speaking about the pitfalls of prescription fraud and how that came about and warning young people that are going through medical school and young doctors about the challenges that they might face and really owning up to it in a very, very public shameful sort of way. One of the things that's not taken into consideration when we talk about the sentencing process in the United States, there are many elements of public safety, restitution, retribution, but something that we try to educate through a Torah perspective into the courts is the idea of shame, of busha, and how impactful that can be and what that really means to a person who may come from a high stature and all of a sudden have to really own what they've done. The other thing that we recommended alongside many different things was the work that he would be doing in rehabilitation environments and centers. And I don't mean acting as a doctor and being there, you know, in a medical capacity. It was really going to inner city rehab centers where the sadness and despair and darkness of what these drugs do to people's lives is a place that he would go and do the most menial tasks and do the work of cleaning bedpans and cleaning up whatever was necessary, but really just being right in the guts of what his behavior had caused and really seeing that in a real way and not just for a day or for a month, but in a very long and ongoing program. And these are types of alternatives which give a court the opportunity to look at it as something substantive rather than just say, well, this person will do community service, but something which is directly correlates with what they've done, but also gives back and forces them to do something productive rather than just be put in a prison somewhere and not really be doing much of anything. We're coming to our next break, and I just want to quickly ask you, uh, in the military environment, what kind of activities do you do? 
And perhaps after the break, you can spend a few moments telling us. It's quite fascinating what you have to say about the uh, jail system in America. I'm sure it's uh, not much different than other places in the world. Um, well, here in South Africa, there also seems to be uh, well a pretty horrible state of affairs when it comes to that situation. But the fact remains that uh, you people are doing something about it, and that should uh, be applauded and supported. Talk about that soon. This is the Weekly Parsha with Rabbi Mendel Lipska from Chabad of Hyde Park. We're back and we're sitting with Rabbi Aaron Lipska. He's telling us some fascinating information about the prison programs in America and what Aleph does. And I asked them to say a few words about the work they do in the military and how that pans out. Well, as you see, the time runs and there's so much that we could talk about. But if I can just encapsulate for a moment what it is that we do with the military... In addition to what I mentioned at the onset of the program about the ecclesiastical endorsements and endorsing chaplains who go out and serve in the United States Armed Forces and bring the light of Torah to those that are serving and those that are out there patriotically fighting for the freedoms that we all enjoy all over the world, those individuals become disconnected from home when they're stationed abroad or when they're deployed they become disconnected from family sometimes. And it's our objective to keep them connected to their families, communities, their Jewishness, and that identity. So the programs really relate to every aspect of every single day, in addition to the training that we provide to the chaplaincy, being that it is a multi-faith environment, and they have to often have services that are provided by a non-Jewish chaplain. But for an example, we have Pesach coming up in a few short weeks. And this is one of the times of year that we ensure that all of the individuals in these environments can and will celebrate a kosher and joyous Pesach with all the necessary items that it takes to have that, whether it's all the necessary items for the Seder or for sufficient kosher food for the duration of Pesach and the matzah and the grape juice and gefilte fish and chocolates and soup and mandalach and everything else that you can imagine so for, we do approximately 200,000 pounds of kosher for Passover supplies that are shipped worldwide to every place all over the world. From, that's, a, that's a huge number, 200,000 pounds. Well, we're, we're addressing a very large community, as well as uh, Pesach is a time that there are many needs. But this continues throughout the year, and this continues when it comes to any holiday, when it comes to any Yom Tif, when it comes to any situation. And of course, as mentioned earlier, and we didn't really have a chance to discuss much about, the tens of thousands of family members that are back home, whether they have a loved one who's serving overseas or a loved one that might be incarcerated, and the needs that those family have, and taking care of those things as well, which is something which is a great responsibility and a great honor to be a part of and making sure that these families are well cared for in the proper way. It's been fascinating talking to you. I know that you're in a bit of a rush right now, so you're going to have to go. But perhaps uh, at your next visit, we'll continue this wonderful conversation and hear about the incredible work that you're doing. Thank you so much, my dear son, Aaron, Rabbi Aaron Lipsker, Executive Director of the Aleph Institute, for sharing some of those ideas and insights with us. Thank you very much. 
As I said, we have a few minutes to talk about the Parsha, and I think we should. It's an important Parsha. Well, it's a double Parsha. It's Vayakel and Pikudei. And it's a Parsha that speaks about the actual building and construction of the temple, giving an account of, uh, well, all the supplies that were brought in and how they were used. In fact, it's an amazing thing that even Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the most trusted of people, he stands up and he gives a full account, totally transparent, about what came in and how it was used in the construction of the Mishkan of the Temple. And perhaps, uh, well, governments and others can learn from this incredible example. Vayakil, of course, means to assemble, to gather, because building a house for God can only be done in an environment of unity when people come together and truly come together. And that's why listening to the stories about Aleph was quite fascinating because it shows a powerful expression of caring at the most fundamental level of people who are otherwise, well, out of sight as out of mind, people that we normally don't think about and we don't care about. And here is an organization that searches out those lonely, both within the difficult situations that they might be in and their families who probably are suffering as much, if not much more, back home. But the concept of Vayakhel, the idea of coming together, is something which is so basic to our faith, the idea of being together. And it's not this social group, you know, we we just connect because we happen to come from the same people. It's because, as the first Lubavitcher Rebbe explains in his holy book, the Tanya, there is a powerful and essential bond that connects us. We all have an ishama, we all have a soul, which is part and parcel of God himself. And this soul is something which is the great equalizer because it's the great connector, not only between ourselves and God, but between ourselves and each other. And the way that we should look at each other is not only to see a human being in a body, but to understand that there's a soul there. And at that soul level, a person is perfect, a person is correct, and therefore the natural expression of contact, of closeness, of caring, should be expressed in the fullest possible measure. And what is built, what is built is a house for God. And a house for God is something which boggles the mind. How can you have a house for God? God, after all, is infinite beyond any type of description. And yet we build a relatively small edifice, certainly in the wilderness, it was a temporary building, and this became the house of God. Because when you do something which comes about as a result of this incredible sense of unity, and you do it with an incredible passion and devotion, each and every physical item blends together and comes together in order to have that structure where God says, this is a place where I can feel comfortable, this is a place where I can, in fact, dwell and to reveal myself in terms of whatever divine revelation it is. This is something which is important for us to understand. And the idea of building a Mishkan is not only this physical edifice, but as our commentaries point out, each and every one of us has the Migdash, this Mishkan, within ourselves. And we have to build it. We have to develop it. We can't simply imagine that it's there. It'll be taken. It has to be nurtured. It has to be fed. And the way we feed our Nishama and the way we feed the temple within each and every one of us is through the expression 
of Torah and mitzvot, the study of Torah, the learning of God's divine will, and fulfilling the commandments, doing what he tells us to do. And this is why, interestingly enough, the parsha begins that Vayakel, and he gathered the people to tell them about this incredible opportunity of having built the Mishkan, and the first law that comes immediately after it's completely juxtaposed is that we have to observe the Shabbos to remind us that we cannot build the Mishkan, we cannot build the temple on Shabbos. Shabbos is a day of rest in the fullest sense of the word. And this is something which is important for us to understand. The way we build a Mishkan is through the observance of mitzvot. When we use the physical world correctly, when we use the physical environment correctly, when we use physical elements correctly, gold and silver and copper and wood and blue wool and purple wool and red threads and all the wonderful gems, when we use the those things correctly, this becomes, well, the building blocks of the temple of a house for God. And it's something that each and every one of us is capable of doing if, in fact, we do it, as I said before, with a sense of passion, with a sense of dedication, with a sense of discipline, with a sense of accepting the authority of God as the authority in one's life. I mentioned it's the Parsha that we conclude the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus, the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim. We go on to Leviticus, we go on to, well, a different type of laws and a different tone in the third book Leviticus. Uh, Shemot is full of stories, excitement, some not so pleasant as we read last week, the story of the golden calf. But mainly we speak about the incredible movement of the Jews from a small family that came with Jacob ultimately, unfortunately, spending hundreds of years in terrible slavery and then emerging as a people in the Exodus, as a a proud and powerful people. This is what the story is all about. And as we come to the, con- <coughs> excuse me, as we come to the conclusion of that story, what we have to dwell on, stop and think about for a moment or two, is are we in the process of actually leaving Egypt? Are we in the process of doing that personally at Siat Mitzrayim, leaving the tyranny behind, going from the darkness into light, going from despair into hope, going from uncertainty into clarity? You know, as mentioned before, we're approaching the festival of Pesach very soon. And Pesach, of course, is the story of Itziat Misraim, the great exodus. How do we prepare for something like that? How do we fill our minds and hearts, our ideas, our thoughts, our actions? How do we fill those things correctly so that we can focus on the idea of freedom in the fullest sense of the word and the truest sense of the word? It's also Shabbat Chazak, as because when we finish a parsha, we shout out together Chazak, Chazak, Benis Chazak, to be strong. Being strong is something which is absolutely necessary. It doesn't mean you go around flexing your muscles or going to a gym in order to, well, develop those ripping muscles, but rather a strength within, as we read in the Book of Ethics and the Ethics of the Fathers in Pirkei Avot, who is the strong person, not the one who is able to capture a city, but the one who is able to control his own emotions, his own temper, a person who is able to be in control of his own life. This is what strength is all about. This is the strength that Torah gives us, a strength that supersedes all sorts of other things. It gives us wisdom. It gives us insight. It gives us the potential for joy. It gives us all sorts of wonderful gifts. It's Parshat Para as well. We read the story of the red heifer and how the ashes of the red heifer were used to purify people who were in a state of impurity of Tumah were sprinkled with this mystical ash, and they became pure. 
fascinating story. Read it carefully tomorrow. It'll be the story that you'll hear in the second Torah scroll that's taken out. But the fact remains, Parshat Parah talks to us about change, about movement, movement from difficult, limited situations to expansive and open and free situations. And all these three things come together on one shot. Parshat Parah, it's Shabbos Mavarchim, the new month of Nisan, which of course is the first of the months of the year that we celebrate. The month contains this festival of Pesach, etc. It's a very special Shabbos. So here goes. When you are in shul tomorrow, listen carefully. Listen carefully to that which is read in the first scroll. Listen carefully how the people came together and what they built. And listen carefully how Moshe gives a full account and reckoning of how he used the materials that the nations that people brought to the temple. Listen in the second scroll, the second scroll of, well, para, of Chukat, this is the supra-rational law of Torah. Listen to that carefully as well. At the appropriate time, call out Chazak, 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 call out, let us be strong, let us be strong, let us strengthen each other. And also when it comes to blessing the new month, Shabbat Mavarchim, we should say it with a certain degree of greater joy. It's the month of Nisan, the first of the Jewish months, the first of the months that contains this wonderful festival of Pesach. For all those reasons and more, 